probably know that that prayer we just prayed comes in the greatest sermon ever preached, Matthew 5 through 7. Let me invite you to open your Bibles now to that text, Matthew chapter 5. Now and then a leader comes along with a strikingly different vision of life as it was meant to be, a different vision of the world like the uh, remarkable mix of personalities who created the United States. Our founders with a vision of government of, by, and for the people. Or like a young president in 1960 with a fresh vision of a new frontier and a challenge, ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. Or Martin Luther King Jr. with his vision of a society in which people were no longer judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Now typically, when a leader like this comes along with a vision like this, the message is received as good news by people who are in the current arrangement losers. The, the people who benefit most from the way things are may resist, but those who are not invested in the old way, in fact may be hurt by the old way, will hear as good news that there's a different way. Well, nobody ever came with a fresher, more radical, more revolutionary, more striking alternative than Jesus. He came, Matthew chapter 4 says, preaching the good news of the kingdom. And what a kingdom. Whoever heard before of a kingdom where the poor are the personal concern of the king himself, we're a kingdom where the sad are glad. We're a kingdom where the downtrodden get the royal treatment. or a kingdom where those imposed upon run the show. That's the vision that Jesus casts in the kingdom manifesto that we call the Sermon on the Mount. He went up on a mountainside like a new Moses, ready to promote a new paradigm. He sat down, which was the customary posture of rabbis. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, 
because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I have followed David Maines in calling this text Kingdom Hype. Not hype in the sense of empty promise, but hype in the sense of attention-getting, exciting. And the Beatitudes are that, aren't they? Uh, Well, maybe familiarity with this, one of the most familiar texts in the Bible, has dulled the impact of the Beatitudes on some of us, but one of us, one of our contemporaries, wrote, Every time I read these words we call the Beatitudes, I stagger mentally. The words and rhythms are so lovely and poetic, yet their impact is that of spiritual torpedoes. Indeed, that's what the impact is of the Beatitudes, or or should be anyway. They explode in consciousness. They are meant to. They are not meant primarily as exhortations to do particular things or to be a certain way, although that is implied. Rather, they are announcements, news, news about a different kind of kingdom, news that the kingdoms of this world are not the only game in town. This came as particularly good news for those who were disenfranchised by the current arrangement, on the bottom of the heap, the losers in sight of the dominant culture. I'm here to tell you, Jesus says, that the kingdom of God and its blessings are for those that the predominant culture regards as losers. I'm here to tell you, Jesus said, that the kingdom of God and its blessings are for those that the predominant culture views as losers. I don't know if you've ever witnessed a race like this. I first read about one several years ago and then did a little looking online and learned a fair amount a bike race in which the aim is to go as slow as possible. Just out of curiosity, anybody ever participate in a race like that? I think the first time that I heard about it, I read a story about a man who entered the race and did not, somehow he did not know what kind of a race he was in. And so when the gun went off, he took off. Whereas everybody else was using the techniques that they had learned, bouncing the bike up and down, going like this, back and forth, so that when the race was over, a certain amount of time, the person who had gone the furthest, the shortest rather, without his foot touching the ground, was declared the winner. Now imagine that you're in a race like that, and you somehow don't know what the rules are. You take off, And you're feeling pretty good because you haven't seen any signs of anybody else until you realize that you've lost by a mile. I think Jesus would like that illustration. I I think that he would say that the typical winner in life as gauged by this world is not the cyclist who gets the furthest, the fastest. The rules in his kingdom 
his father's kingdom are different. His kingdom, the first will be last, and the last will be first. And in that kingdom, the blessings are for those that the prevailing culture regards as losers. The poor in spirit, for example, the first beatitude. We don't want to be poor in any way, shape, or form. But Jesus says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Happy are those who realize how poor they are, how impoverished they are, spiritually speaking. Uh, Some translations begin each of these blessings, and that's what beatitudes are, blessings, with the word happy. Happy are the poor in spirit, and so on. Well, that's okay, as long as you don't take that to mean a subjective feeling of happiness. The citizens of God's kingdom do not always feel happy, but objectively speaking, they are. They have God's approval, or as one writer put it, they have the applause of heaven. In that sense... Happy are those who are spiritually poor, recognize their need of God. John Piper was preaching or lecturing in Aspen, Colorado, and then he had a question and answer time afterwards, and uh, a woman, not a believer, asked, isn't Christianity just a crutch when you come right down to it? Some of us would be offended by the question, and we would hem and haw. We would feel attacked to some extent to hear our religion called a crutch. Piper answered without any hemming and hawing. He said, is Christianity a crutch? Absolutely, period. Jesus says, blessed are those who know they need a crutch. Blessed are those who know how impoverished they are spiritually and are not ashamed to say so. Now, it doesn't surprise me that that question would come up in Aspen. There aren't a whole lot of poor people in Aspen. And people who are rich financially often imagine themselves to be rich in other ways, rich in power, rich in opportunity, rich in what they've made of themselves, whether you can measure that in dollars or not. And our culture says, blessed are the rich. Blessed are those who have it all together. Blessed are the self-confident, the competent, the strong, those with a good ego and plenty of self-esteem. But Jesus says, blessed are the spiritually poor, the people who sing, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless, Look to thee for grace. In England, there's a prestigious downtown church that has several missions in the slums of London. On the first Sunday of each new year, all of the congregations meet at the main campus for a joint service. And uh, although the downtown church has many of the upper crust of England, and the missions have broken criminals, drug abusers. They all kneel at the same communion rail. 
And one year, the pastor noticed that side by side at the communion rail was one of the chief justices of the Supreme Court of England. I forget, they don't, the High Court, I think they call it. One of the justices of the High Court of England, the whole country, was kneeling next to um, an ex-convict, a guy who had found Christ in prison and had come out resolved to live a new life. They were right there side by side. After the service, the justice and the pastor happened to be walking out together, and um, the justice said, did you notice who was kneeling next to me at the rail? And the pastor said, yeah, I did, but I didn't think you did. And the judge said, what a miracle of grace. And the pastor said, yep, indeed, what a miracle of grace. And then the judge said, but who, who are you thinking of? And the pastor said, well, the, the ex-con, of course. And the judge said, that's not who I was thinking of. He said, of course the criminal would recognize his need of God's grace. How broken he was, how desperate he was. It was different for me. I was raised in a good family, in affluence. I went to Oxford. I got my degrees. I was admitted to the bar uh, and then became a judge and eventually to the high court. It takes a lot of God's grace to bring somebody like me to see his need of a savior. Blessed are you if whether you're rich or poor, you recognize your spiritual poverty because yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, Jesus goes on to say. Happy are the sad. <laughs> paradoxical, isn't it? Well, these lines are paradoxical. Someone has defined paradox as truth standing on its head to get attention. And that's what these Beatitudes do. They turn our normal way of thinking upside down, topsy-turvy. Happy are the sad? What could be more counterintuitive than that? We don't like being sad. In fact, we'll do anything to avoid being sad. We'll laugh when we ought to weep. We are, as Neil Postman put it a few decades ago in his outstanding book, which everybody ought to read, A Culture Amusing Ourselves to Death. But Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. And I don't think he means cheerless Christians, you know, grim-faced people who look like they could be illustrations for the Book of Lamentations. Joyless, cheerless believers who are a bad testimony for the gospel. Robert Louis Stevenson must have had these kind of Christians in mind when he wrote in his diary, went to church today and was not greatly depressed. <laughs> there are Christians like that. You feel bad just being around them, but that's not what Jesus is talking about, nor is he pronouncing a sweeping blessing on anyone who mourns for any reason. There are people, let's face it, who mourn because they didn't get what they wanted for Christmas. Uh, there are people who mourn because their sin did not satisfy, or because they got caught. What kind of mourning is Jesus talking about? I think it makes sense to read the second beatitude in light of the first. Blessed, happy are those 
who recognize their spiritual neediness and who mourn over their poverty. Blessed are those like Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, whose heart ached over the sins of his nation. Blessed are those like the psalmists whose hearts ached to see righteousness done and the moral beauty of God's holiness embraced by everybody. Blessed are those like the Apostle Paul who could pray, wretched man that I am. Blessed are all Christians of all ages who could pray with integrity the words of the old prayer book, we acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins. We have been treated in recent years to a lot of non-apology apologies from people in power. People who stutter when supposedly coming clean, but there is no beatitude here for people who say, my bad. Years ago, the Chicago Sun-Times had an article entitled, There is Something Worse Than Sin. I wonder if any major city daily would have a title like that today. There, there's nothing worse than sin. It was a story about the reprehensible sins of two congressmen, Illinois' own Daniel Crane and Gerald Studs of Massachusetts. Both men had been censured by the U.S. House of Representatives, Cain for sexual relations with a 17-year-old page, and Jerry Studs for relations with a 17-year-old male page. The writer of the article observes, being censured is the only thing that Crane and Studs have in common. The nation got a glimpse of their differences when Crane admitted tearfully to his district and then to the full house that he broke the laws of God and man and cast a vote for his own censure, facing the House of Representatives as the speaker announced the tally. Jerry Studs, in contrast, acknowledged actually proudly that he was gay and defended his relationship with the page as mutual and voluntary, said that he had abided by the age of consent and that the relationship did not warrant the action that the House was taking, and when the censure vote was taken, he voted present with his back turned to the House. Now, the reporter points out that there's something worse than sin, and that's not acknowledging sin. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. They will know the comfort of forgiveness. They will know the comfort of the Holy Spirit, whose nickname is the Comforter. Blessed are the meek, verse 5, for they will inherit the earth. I still remember Mr. LaRue laughing about this one. Mr. LaRue was my high school history teacher, and he loved to get his digs in at the Christians in the class. And 
This beatitude really set him off. Blessed are the meek, they'll inherit the earth. What a laugh. He knew world history. He knew what happens to the meek. They get crushed. I don't remember whether it was in his class or not, probably, but back in that era, we saw in school an animated short, a short animated film, Bambi Meets Godzilla. Anybody remember this cartoonish thing? Very short. First of all, you see a cartoon of Bambi feeding in a meadow while music plays. And then all of a sudden, you see this gigantic foot come down and squash Bambi flat. All you see of Bambi are the legs sticking out. And then the credits roll, the end. That's, that's it. The whole, th whole thing takes about 30 seconds. It's a whole movie. That's what happens to the meek. They get smashed. You wouldn't think that meekness is much of a value if you listen to talk radio or political programming these days. Somebody quoted, somebody had this quote on television. At the beginning of the 21st century, reasoned discourse is giving way to in-your-face sound bites. Hardball is the dominant metaphor for American public life. Our interchanges are confrontational, divisive, and dismissive. Truth is not something we hope will emerge from a conversation. It is something we hope to impose. Balance and fairness are casualties on evening shows as two, three, and sometimes four voices contend simultaneously for dominance Volume and intransigence are the new civic virtues. So once again, Jesus is contemporary, and he is countercultural and says, blessed are the meek, the gentle. If not by the next election cycle, meekness will pay. In the end, if not immediately after the next corporate takeover or shrewd example of insider trading, the meek will inherit the earth. I wonder if you noticed the mixture of the present and the future in the way the Beatitudes are stated. The first and last are in the present. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And in between, it's all future. They will be blessed. Well, this pattern is in keeping with the rest of the Bible, with its already not yet view of the Christian's experience. We are saved. We will be saved. We have eternal life, but we will one day enter that world where there is no more death at all. Right now, in some ways, we resemble Christ, our older brother, but when we see him, we will be like him. God is right now with us by his spirit, but we look forward to that day when we will be with him. And so, Jesus says, 
that the kingdom is here and the kingdom is coming. And the pure in heart, for example, will see God. Right now, we can see him or something of him in creation, in the church, in communion, in one another, in his providence in our lives, but there's coming that day, and may it be soon, where we'll see him face to face. It's already not yet. The Apostle Paul could say, in Christ, all things are yours. Now, you're rich in Christ, but the meek will inherit the earth. Already, not yet. Martin Luther King Jr. was leading a protest against injustice, and the sheriff came up and said, you're all under arrest. And King protested. He said, these people are not doing anything wrong. The sheriff said, we have the law on our side. The king says, we have justice on our side, and someday you'll know it. One day. When? Well, King later addressed that question in a well-known speech to his followers. I know you are asking today, how long will it take? I come to say to you this afternoon, however difficult the moment, however frustrating the hour, it will not be long because truth crushed to the earth will rise again. How long? Not long because no lie can live forever. How long? Not long, because you reap what you sow. How long? Not long, because the arc of the moral universe bends toward justice. How long? Not long, because mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. How long? Not long. I hope you believe that. Even though it's not self-evident. <laughs> the Sermon on the Mount is not composed of nice, wise sayings that any reasonable person would agree with. It is full of paradox. It is counterintuitive. It is countercultural. Line after line, it turns upside down our natural way of viewing things. Blessed are those who are hungry. Blessed are those who are persecuted. I don't know if I'll live long enough to someday preach a series of sermons on just the Beatitudes, one on each Beatitude. Uh, I'm not going to do that today. I'm not going to touch on all of them. I think I have said enough to make the point. God's kingdom and its blessings belong to those the prevailing culture views as losers. A missionary in Laos discovered a great illustration of the kingdom of God. Back before the colonialists imposed national boundaries, the kings of Laos and Vietnam reached an agreement on the taxation of people who lived 
on the border, the rather undefined border. Those who ate short grain rice and built their houses on stilts and decorated them with Indian-style serpents would be considered Laotians. Those who ate long grain rice, built their houses on the ground, and decorated them with Chinese-style dragons would be considered Vietnamese. The exact location of a person's house was not what determined his nationality. Instead, each person belonged to the kingdom whose values he exhibited. You live right next door to people who look just like you, probably. But you're different, aren't you? You need a crutch, don't you? You mourn, don't you? You ride your bike slow, don't you? Well, let's pray. Gracious Father, by your Spirit, make this vision of your Son, the Lord Jesus, real in our experience. Help us to be different for his sake, for our own sake, for the sake of the people who live around us. May the mind of Christ, our Lord, our teacher, our savior, live in us from day to day by his love and power controlling all we do and say that he might be known and honored and glorified and that we might live life as the king meant it to be lived. And let all his people say,